Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, a weekly show in which there are many things to cover. As always, there are no unbusy weeks. There are always busy weeks. Uh, the Will Pukowski story, the Women's World Cup coming up, uh, the England women's schedule is out. Uh, the England men got rid of. Stuart Broad and James Anderson. Mm, that caused a little bit of, um, little bit of, uh, of comment. We've got Australia playing Sri Lanka and we've got a large-scale interview. Well, not a large, large-scale interview. Certainly smaller scale than some interviews, but larger than others. Uh, everything's <laughs> a matter of perspective with Ben Jones of CrickViz, who is talking to us about the Pakistan Super League and the IPL auction to try to get our heads around T20 franchise cricket, which is the part of the game that we have least time to cover and understand. But he understands it for us. Uh, So that will be coming up in the second part of the show. But in the first part of the show, you know that on The Final Word, we love happy birthdays. Uh, We love to play a song about happy birthdays. But today we're playing that song for Winifred May Collins, not Sachin Ramesh Tendulkar. Yes, Winnie's too. She turned two, of course, on Valentine's Day. And she knows all about it as well. She goes, uh, she says, she says, Winnie Mae Collins is two, which is ridiculously cute. <laughs> Winnie Mae Collins, who does this book belong to? Winnie Mae Collins. So we had a party around here on, on Sunday, which ended up becoming a bit of a, bit of a Leo Sayer, actually. We started at about 10 o'clock and people shuffled off at about seven in the evening. We put her into the bath and she had the time of her little life. And uh, I, I, I mentioned she got a bat. We'll talk more about that later. But um, in fact, it was, it was such a, it was an interesting crowd, like, you know, quite a few cricket people floating around uh, in our, in our um, sort of kitchen there. And none of us knew that when we were singing happy birthday to Winnie and doing the cake, um, her grandmother made her an amazing hedgehog cake, which is Rachel's mum. Uh, and she's, I mean, she's so good at these types of things. She made the exact same cake for Rach when she turned two, so a bit of symmetry there between generations. But that was all taking place during the super over of the Australia-Sri Lanka T20s, which we didn't know about. No one in the room knew about, despite there being a handful of uh, people involved in cricket uh, at our place at the time, which probably says more about how off-Broadway that, that T20 series is, but we'll talk about it anyway. Mm, we will, because, you know, off-Broadway, on-Broadway. Can I just ask, so if, if Winnie's 
talking about herself in the third person now. Yes. Um, is, that, is there a full <laughs> Kanye trajectory um, planned? Do you th- who's yeah. going to be the Taylor Swift well, of the Winnie well, Collins well, well, this story? This is it. Well, I, I was pondering this on the Guardian Winter Olympics coverage yesterday uh, because she's been watching the skating with me and um, now she's been putting her hands behind her back trying to slide on her feet, which is pretty bloody cute. Um, so I was speculating that maybe in, in, uh, in 16 years' time as an 18-year-old she might be turning out in, in the glorified roller derby that is um, short short track speed skating, uh, which, which we actually spent some time talking about last week, didn't we, on Storytime. If you haven't listened to our Storytime episode last week, Storytime 78, I can recommend it. If I do say so myself, it was um, a lot of fun to make. We, we're on the hunt for the oldest cricketer, potentially, or maybe the oldest cricketer ever. To, well, not ever. But how, how shall I frame this? The oldest surviving, play, surviving cricketer. cricketer. We're not entirely yeah. sure whether Thelma McKenzie is alive at 106, but she might be. Rhett Bartlett, uh, the, the fabulous <laughs> football historian, has been on the job for us, and uh, uh, and you've been doing some work on that as well, Jeff. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's a lot going on. But, yeah, not least Winnie. The, the, the Winnie stuff's been fun. Interesting phrasing to say that Rhett's been on the job yeah, for us. Um, as soon as I said that. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. As soon as I said that, I wanted to bring it back, but I'm like, we've we've come this far. Rhett's on the job for the final word. Make a T-shirt. I, we'll get a League Tees T-shirt made up for it. I must have... <laughs> I must have been watching um, a lot of skeleton at a formative age because mm. I've spent most of my life just lying face down <laughs> and hoping that no one will notice me. Um, yeah. <laughs> right, the the cricket, um, yeah, this yes. this weird five T Twenty series against Sri Lanka. Look, we're not going to go into into a depth of detail on this because I, as far as series that no one's paying attention to, this is this has got to be right up there with some of those like first week of November sort of three ODI jobs that, that Cricket Australia have put on over the years. Five T20s, A, is a lot of T20s for, for two international teams to play against one another. I guess it's sort of forward planning prep for the World Cup defence um, towards the end of this year, so October, starting in October this year. But mm, they've shaken everything up. Ben McDermott's opened the batting. Josh Inglis has debuted and been batting at first drop. So finally, all of the Inglis backers have got their guy in the team in one format at least, even though he was apparently supposed to be the keeper in all formats about two months ago. <laughs> uh, got to go to India. Look, shall we run an eye over the games? Yeah, I, I suppose we, I suppose we should. The first of the games, I was waking up on must have been Friday morning and received the team sheet through on WhatsApp, and I thought, oh, this must be sent in error. There's not a there's not a T20 international today, is there? But. Uh, but there was. Uh, and look, I, I don't mind the five-game yeah. T20 series. I mean, or rather, I don't mind them playing a lot of T20 international cricket at this juncture. I just would prefer if they had a third team in to spice it up a little bit. We, we've talked about this quite a bit mm. in the last couple of years in the final word. I think that bilateral T20 series don't really work because they're not in any broader context. Even with uh, one-day international cricket now, it's got the World Cup Super League, right? So if you you know bring a third party in to spice it up a wee bit, we can play a tri-series in the space of seven days. Everyone plays everyone twice. That's six days in the final on the seventh. But the way it could be set up is that if we have these little tri-series going on around the world, it gives them uh, practice in, 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 I suppose, tournament play as well because right now, this just feels like it'll it'll fade into obscurity so quickly in much the same way that the series that Australia played last year in the build-up to that T20 World Cup. They were thrashed away from home and had no correlation to what they were able to achieve in the UAE. So, yeah, just a, just a thought on the way through. Mm. Uh, well, yeah, game one, McDermott 
53, Inglis 23 on debut. They were flying along 80 for one at the halfway mark. Middle order falls away, 149 for nine. Sri Lanka didn't get near it in the end. Um, Hazelwood got the headline figures with four for 12, but it was more Zampa who did the job up the top, um, three for 18 with... You know, taking big wickets at uh, at important times. Hazelwood cleaned up late in that one. But then it was Hazelwood doing that job in the second game. Just dismayed them early on. Took a couple of early ones and got the key late wicket. Three for 22 from four overs after his four for 12 from four overs. Not bad going. Well timed in terms of that. I mean, we've already had our conversation with Ben Jones uh, this morning, London time. We're recording quite deep in the evening uh, UK time for this bit, bit of the show. But we talked about Josh Hazelwood in that chat about how he's risen to become the, the highest paid Australian IPL player out of the fast bowlers, at least not including Tim David. But, uh, I mean, you know, he, he just does it so consistently. Uh, I suppose it's a, a reminder that even if you don't have a big bag of tricks, if you're as consistent and as quick as Hazelwood is from that height, you're going to always get in the book plenty. And, and that's enough to be a threat even in 20 over cricket when you're meant to have six slower balls and, you know, three different off cutters and uh, a back of the hand leg cutter or whatever. He doesn't have any of that really, uh, but he's still super effective. Well, the second game was fun because uh, Australia goes 164 for six and then Patam Nasanko, we've been enjoying watching for a while, opened the batting mm. and just kept going through even though wickets kept falling at, at the other end. So he's batting with Dustin Shanako and they, they needed about 12 and over off, off the last four and but they were starting to score pretty quickly and then um, Steve Smith pulls out a crazy run out direct hit throw from the deep it comes down to needing 19 from 7 balls when Hazelwood gets Wanindu Hasaranga out who can hit them a pretty long way and so at that point 19 off 6 you think it's probably not going to happen but Nasanka's still there then he whacks a full toss to the deep and gets out with 3 balls to go definitely not going to happen and then the numbers 9 and 10 neither of whom have faced a ball Tikshana hits a six, Chimera hits a, a four, and, and they tie the game and send it into a super over. And, and that's leaving out the six, which ended up seeing Smith concussed because he did such a flying leap over the boundary to palm it back in. Actually did it, like knocked it back in and, and it would have been one run, except his foot was touching the rope when he took off. So his foot wasn't touching the rope when he was midair, but because his last point of contact had been outside the boundary as it were it's ruled a six because you can't start you've got to start from inside the field to play which in the end his his um, attempts ended up being unnecessary because Australia win the super over easily Hazelwood goes for five <laughs> five of the super over ridiculous stuff again unhittable but yeah it was quite it was a it was a fun finish aside from Steve Smith who's got a headache and is missing the rest of the series yeah interesting that, that Smith's been concussed again I mean I know it's a long time since Lords 2019, but as we'll probably talk about later in the show around Will Pukowski, it, it, it can become an issue if it happens three or four times, so that'll be something they'll, they'll need to be mindful of in the short term. Uh, and then in the well, th- it's certainly three, because he was hit in 2020 in the one-day series in oh, England. Oh, yeah, that's um, right. He, yeah. he, missed, he missed that whole he did. series because he was hit in the nets. Yeah, you're right. I forgot about that. So it's three times in three years. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so those first two games were at, were at the Sydney Cricket Ground. I didn't see the attendance for the second one, but um, the first, it was dismal. It was like 11,000 or something like that. 
uh, which kind of feeds what you said before around just kind of like it's just so away from the public consciousness. I suppose the fact that it's on pay television and not on um, not on free to air doesn't help the situation. Back in the I suppose the glory days of white ball cricket being played at this time of year in Australia, it was a I don't know whether it was appointment viewing that might be overplaying it a little bit, but certainly you knew it was happening. But um, when it's hidden behind the paywall, um, I suppose this is the the price they pay a little bit, even if they are um, well watched on on Fox, and I'm sure they are. The third game was played at Canberra, though. I did, by the way, say to Dan Cherney on on Twitter about this that if they're only going to get ten thousand people or so to a T20 international, they should play it at North Sydney, and mm. um, they should go full Mercantile Mutual Cup um, from back in the '90s when the North Sydney Oval was the the second Sydney ground when. They were never going to sell out the SCG um, for a, for a mercantile mutual game, so they'd they play it over the bridge at North Sydney, and it was a, a hell of a time. So, um, given they've got the floodlights there these days, I don't think that's completely crazy for um, them to, to consider that if they're going to have series like this. What's better, a capacity North Sydney, um, mm. or, or or a sort of a cavernous SCG that's a fifth or or so uh, capacity in like what was it? I think it holds fifty thousand these days. The SCG, so you know, twenty percent full at the SCG. It's like the MCG. When there's no one there, it's not a good experience for for people, be it at the ground or on television. Play it at Brookie. Have they considered playing at Brookvale? <laughs> get, maybe get a double header. Get the Sea Eagles to yes. to play an opening match. You know. Um, that could bring work. the local support in. It could work. And then they'll stay on. They'll stay on for the Australia-Sri Lanka game. You know? get, get, I like the way you're thinking. What's, this sta- is- what's style Cherry Evans up to? <laughs> How's it going in the middle order? Let's work this out. Um, so that's still going on. The third game happened last night, our time, which will be some for further time ago, your time. Yeah, so uh, I took a look at this one before. So Sri Lanka made 121 for six. Uh, Shanika, the captain, 39 not out, batting at number six but the problem is he's coming in at four for 40 in the eighth over and they're already on a sort of a bit of a hiding to nothing and and uh and Australia were only set 122. Kane Richardson did the damage early. He's been a bowler we haven't talked about an awful lot in recent times. Didn't get a run in the T20 World Cup last year, but was part of the squad the whole way through. Three for 21 and earned the Player of the Match award. Uh, Maxi bowled one over, got this unker, one for three, all done. Didn't bowl again, so um, played his role uh, down there, as he often does with his off spin. And they chased that down in, in 16.5 overs to win by six wickets. Maxi involved again, top scoring with 39 for 26 after missing out in the first couple of games. Finch at number three made 35 off 36. That's because they decided to open with Ashton Agar, which was interesting. I'm not sure if that Mm. was a a left-hand, right-hand thing, but he made 13 from 13, opening the batting, and Josh Inglis came in down the end, so they shuffled him down. He made 21 not out uh, with Marcus Stoinis, an unbeaten 12 there to uh, get home uh, with 19 deliveries up their sleeve. But yes, Ashton Agar opening the batting. I'm not sure if much comment was passed on this, but I suppose he hasn't been doing an awful lot, so give him a chance to get in the game. I think I, I think this was just a tribute to Wilfred Rhodes. Um, <laughs> you've got a left-arm spinner who's batted 11 in the past, and you want to pop them into open for a bit and see if you know maybe this spurs Agar on to those heights. Uh, I think it was because of outs. They rested three players. So Daniel Sams came in as well. and uh, uh, But I don't know why it was instead of Finch. Maybe it was just... 
I don't know, try something out, have something up your sleeve. Who knows? Justin Langer never opened with Ashton Agar, did he? That was the, the, the lack of imagination <laughs> that brought him undone. So, yeah, look, I, I, I didn't actually follow it closely enough to know why that happened, but it did happen. Uh, sometimes we can just be happy because something did. The, the Langer situation has just chilled out a bit um, because Pat Cummins came out and did his Pat Cummins thing, which was speak well and lucidly and give some clarity on it and put out a good statement and had a, a little bit of a subtle swing back at the, um, you know, some of the people who've been getting stuck into him. Um, and it took some of the heat out of the situation, it seemed to me. Yeah, I think he did a pretty good job. The, the written statement was obviously carefully drafted, probably with his management team, but had quite a sharp line in there, didn't it, about how he would stick up for his players and he, and he directly addressed that comment to the former greats who, who'd been critical of him. Um, so they, the way he framed it was that, you know, you're entitled to stand up for your mate, but I'm going to stand up for my teammates. And this kind of reinforces Is that point. Is standing by your mate <laughs> when he's in a fight? <laughs> True blue. Uh, well, well, maybe this is a bit of a departure from the true blue thing. Is it Vegemite? Is it Vegemite? Is it, is it, dad? Is it a cockatoo? I mean, we, we kind of touched on this a little bit last week peripherally, but whether Pat realises it or not, he is distancing himself from that, that group. Uh, you know, whether it was intentional or not, he's probably realised, but whether it was, whether he set out to, you know, because ever since they all retired and you know they didn't retire at the same time or anything but you can kind of go back to when that really truly great team of the late 90s started uh, pulling the pin and all the way through to probably I suppose Ponting and Hayden who finished up in 2008 and 2009 there have been this this steady stream of all-time greats and they have such a massive megaphone and we talked about that last week but they have had such an influence on the public discourse around the national cricket team since retiring. And this is, again, whether whether this was Cummins' intention or not, this is a bit of a corrective on that. Even just having the guts to put that line in the statement, which will be a bit of a lightning rod to, to some of them, I'm sure. I don't expect Tim Payne would have been comfortable doing that. And that's no reflection on Tim, by the way. It's just the, the nature of the, the time when he took over. He was so closely aligned to that group by virtue of his relationship with Langer. So you know, I thought that was really interesting. And, and it did prompt Adam Gilchrist to say that Cummins had, had spoken well. So I, I felt like that might be a bit of a, a breaking of bread between Cummins and, mm. and the more sensible types. I don't expect we're going to see, you know, Hayden or Warren saying anything remotely nice about Cummins anytime soon. But or, well, maybe that's overstretching it. Maybe they will be complimentary of Cummins, the player. But, you know, they'll, they'll wear, certainly Hayden will wear what happened to Langer close for a long time. But people like Gilchrist and presumably Ponting, who will probably realise a lot quicker that there is a path ahead here where uh, everyone can, can accept that it was a tough time and, and can get on with it in the best interest of Australian cricket. Well, certainly out of that group. Adam Gilchrist comes across as the most conciliatory and, and mm, mm. perhaps reasonable um, and wanted to, I got the sense, wanted to turn that around from being a, an antagonistic sort of one camp versus another position and, and smooth things over. We we got an interesting email in on this from one yes. of our patrons, Richard, which I will read to you. It's It's a brief email, but here we go. A number of times, he says, I was the lawyer for companies that could see the bottom of the barrel of their money and my role was to get them going again. 
Half a dozen times, the companies not only survived but thrived. In each of those cases, about three years after their survival was certain, I was shown the door. It never had to do with the quality of my performance, but I think it resulted from two things. The guy who was good at dealing with their near-death situation was probably not the best at dealing with a profitable company. And I think more importantly, my presence was a reminder of the bad old days. When you reach a certain level of prosperity, you don't want to think back. And I never starred in an Amazon special about how I'd helped save those companies. I never complained about those decisions. I understood them completely. Langer could have seen the writing on the wall, but I think that's not his personality. You can't parallel everything, but it was it, it was interesting that, yeah, that perhaps in part it's about the situation as it was at the time that he took over. And, uh, yeah, you can't, you, people don't always want to be reminded of how they've been saved in a way. Yeah, I read that email and, and thought it was bang on. Maybe not explicitly about being reminded of Cape Town necessarily because Langer wasn't there for that, but the fact that they'd grown beyond the need for a coach that was like Langer, that more paternalistic style of coach. And yeah, that, that, that's really shone through in, in what Cummins was saying. He wasn't saying that Langer's intensity, and he used that word. Like he said, you know, uh, he, he talked about intensity in the written statement. It's not as though uh, that was... Th- he wanted to make sure that people knew that wasn't it. That w- It wasn't like because Langer revs them up, you know, in, into a frenzy or whatever. That's probably a bad way of putting it, but you know what I'm trying to say. Um, <laughs> the, the, that, 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 is the, that was the reason for parting ways. It was that... And look, he, he, I suppose he didn't talk about the moody, inconsistent elements of Langer's reported uh, personality inside the dressing room, but he did address the intensity uh, critique. And look, you know, intensity comes in all different forms. I suppose when Cummins read the reports of Langer wanting to be coached for 10 years or beyond, that, that might have come across as pretty intense as well. But but still, like, it, it did feel to me, reading between the lines, that, and not only just between the lines, but but also in, in what he said in, in the Q&A at the press conference, that this group of players, as we talked of last week, is ready for a different kind of uh, leadership, a different kind of support staff. And, and that's what they're, they're seeking uh, now as they, they take on these new kind of challenges that bear little resemblance to the challenges that were being dealt with when, when Langer took over in 2018. Mm. Well, that might be the last time we have to talk about Justin Langer on the show for a couple of weeks <laughs> even, um, but he, I, I presume he's got home uh, felt well played on his last few years, the things that have gone well, and uh, I hope he's enjoying a well-earned break at the moment. Uh, Will Pekowski's having a break, not one that he wanted, another concussion, concussion 11, and, and this one, I mean, it's, it's almost a point of absurdity that uh, this, this is from getting hit with a volleyball during the warm-up for a, a shield game his his problem has become so advanced that a contact like that and what was apparently a pretty minimal contact it wasn't like somebody kicked it into his head it was a a, a glancing hit brought about headaches and nausea which are classic concussion symptoms and so he was subbed out of the game he's still saying he wants to play on cricket victoria's manager sean graff was the intermediary for that um, saying that he he just wants to get back out there i i'm not sure how you can think that that's going to happen if such an incidental if if the sensitivity is now so high that such an incidental contact can bring on a concussion yeah look i definitely understand that perspective but i don't think we should be necessarily 
sort of viewing it as he plays or he quits forever quite yet. Like I, I do think, and Dan Bredig wrote um, a really measured piece around this yesterday, that what might be a, a nice middle ground here is um, uh, let him get away from the rigours of professional cricket for a time. Give him some space. Give him a chance to not only recover physically from his injuries that are clearly piling up above the shoulders with balls hitting him in the head, uh, but also just that ongoing anxiety, which is clearly part of it, and allowing him to just be a young man doing his thing. I know he was studying um, uh, when he started his professional career. Maybe he can go back to that. Dan suggested he could play some club cricket and just get away from the professional game for a couple of years. He'd still come back a young man. We're a relatively young man Mm. in, in professional cricket terms. And it might very well be the case that his situation does improve. Give himself that chance. Uh, What I'm trying to say is he doesn't need to pull the ripcord and retire tomorrow. Like I think that'd be, yeah, jumping the gun. It's like, just give himself a chance just to take a beat, get away from this and see where things are placed in, in a little while. It's not about getting on the next tour. Remember that as recently as, oh gosh, two or three weeks ago, he was talking about wanting to be on the Pakistan trip. So I suppose Mm. it's always been when he's fit and ready to roll, he's thinking about playing for Australia. Whereas I'm now as much as I want him to play for Australia. And obviously I, I, you know, I I feel like I've got a bit of a vested interest in him, him doing well because I've been following him so closely since he was a teenager. But yeah, maybe there is just some middle ground here where he doesn't retire, but he doesn't necessarily continue as a professional right now. And he just gets a chance just to step back from the from the brink and, and, and see where he's placed in maybe a year mm. or two. What I didn't agree with in Dan's piece was that idea of being able to just go back and play club cricket. You can still get hit in the head playing club cricket. You still get bold bounces in club cricket. You're still wearing a helmet, which means it still rattles your head around if you do get hit, whether it's off the top edge or a fielding throw or or whatever it might be. And such is his sensitivity at the moment that any contact, like if you're getting concussed by a volleyball, it doesn't matter what level of cricket you're playing at, you're still taking a a commensurate risk. You know, you're still taking a reasonably substantial risk. And so uh, I don't think it necessarily needs to be retire right now because you know we're not doctors and that's a decision he can make in consultation with medical professionals but the position that he's in where this injury is so easily exacerbated taking time out doesn't help that taking two years off doesn't change that if he's got that sensitivity to head knocks then that will remain and whatever situation he does that puts him at risk of getting hit in the head you're always at risk of being hit in the head playing cricket at any form yeah i was reminded of the of the situation of young harvey hussein at, at derbyshire who pulled the pin uh, last year very similar situation had been concussed to, i don't know if it was 11 times but you know a number of times and, and, and i think it was only i think it was four for yeah. hussein but it was four yeah. in a couple of years really good player too and it was this kind of sense that you know you grief for the kid because, you know, what what might have been, right? And I think that's probably where we're not quite at that point with Pekofsky. And, um, yeah, maybe you're right. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms. I was more thinking, and I suppose I'm speaking for Dan here, but I think he was thinking the relative risk of getting hit is lower because the bowling's slower and, and so on. But you're right, there is still some managed risk, I suppose, at, at um, playing at grade level. Or maybe it's like park cricket. You know what I'm trying to say, though? Like, just being out of the mm. frying pan of the professional game. But he he's so impatient. Like, all he wants to do is play. He's so frustrated that the last thing he wants is more time off. I, I would 
assume from what we've yeah. seen of him over yeah. the last couple of years. He's desperate to get out there. He's been so keen to get back every time that he's been out because he hasn't been able to play. He's spent years of a young life not playing um, when that's what he wants to do. And he's just had enough of a taste, enough glimpses to show that he really can do it. He really can cut it at the top level. But every time he gets close, he gets this setback. And so I would guess that offering him a couple of years off would be, he, he would be thinking all I've had is years off so far. Yeah. Yeah. And even the fact that last year it wasn't even a concussion, it was the bloody shoulder injury, you know, like this guy's, it's all been said really, mm. but the, the, the run of luck he's had is, um, almost without precedent. It reminds me of um, uh, Lee Walker, that Collingwood uh, footballer who had knee reconstruction after knee reconstruction after knee reconstruction back in the mid-90s. I mean, there's a bit of that with Pekowski, I suppose. But, um, yeah, wish him well. And hopefully um, he, he's well advised, um, as you say, by his medical team. And and, uh, and I'm sure everybody at Cricket Victoria and Cricket Australia have got his best interest at heart. I, I don't think anybody would be um, trying to push him out the gate um, if they don't mm. think that, that he's right. So I, I have faith in, in the system to that extent. There are a lot of, um, you know, a, a lot of good medical people around the professional game uh, and, and they'll, they'll have a, an acute appreciation of just how challenging this is. Uh, in the meantime, in the match that he had to get subbed out of, um, the Victorians stayed top of the table. They had a draw at the Adelaide Oval. Jake Weatherall and Daniel Drew made tons first up, set Victoria 315 to win. Peter Hanscombe held them off 148 not out. Back in the chat, back in the conversation. And then uh, New South Wales beat Queensland by two wickets at the Gabba. This was a a really interesting match. Mm. All four scores under 200. Um, A couple of key 50s for Kawaja and Daniel Hughes. And you'll enjoy this particularly. Chris Tremaine, player of the match, for taking two for in the first innings and three for in the second. (laughs) Also made 53 unbeaten runs across the two innings, I think. So important down the order. But um, lovely to see a bowler getting the nod because batters get the nod all the time for like making 60 or whatever it is, but yes. a bowler never gets it for three for. Here comes Chris Tremaine, three for, man of the match. Love to see it. I also love to see that, those handscum runs on the final day. Such a tough run at Middlesex last year. I mean, just had to feel for him. Nothing went right. Got off the plane, was playing two days later, bagged a pair, I think it was, to start. And it, it didn't get much better. I think he only passed 50 twice uh, before he had to return back to the, the Victorian preseason. And he'll be returning to Middlesex this year as club captain. So I'll be watching him quite a lot. But um, yes, the, the very fact that he can, I mean, it's not that we can, that we doubt that he can play in innings like that. He did, he, he did so last year against the full test attack against New South Wales and made a really gutsy hundred on the final day to save a game out of Bankstown. So he did it, it in Ranchi. He did it in Ranchi all those years ago. Nobody doubts that Hanscom's got the ability to play international cricket. You'd be mad to think that. It's just that he's so far back in the pecking order. And I think that a lot of people, well, you know, it's always the problem in Australian cricket. If you've got a perceived technical flaw or a curiosity as it is with Hanscom, I wouldn't call it a flaw, but the way that he sets up with that unusual bat tap and how far he used to go back towards the middle stump um, with his back foot. That means that you've got sort of 10 million people telling you you're fucking shit when, you know, it's, it's a game which has been suitable to get into mm. the very top of, of professional ranks and, and play for Australia and, and all the rest of it. He's he's obviously a, a player of, of, of real talent. I think he's 
31 years of age now. So time is still on his side. So, yeah, really pleased to see that. 31 is the new 24 in um, in Test cricket, uh, as far as batting goes particularly. So the Vicks stay top on, on ratio, um, not Twitter style, but um, they've only played four Match games. Match ratio. played five. That's, that's, well, uh, because that, that's very 1993 <laughs> AFL season right there. Uh, the match <laughs> ratio determines it ahead of the percentage. I like it. Match Walker. Yeah, so WA have got more points, but... They do it on based on the number of games you've had. Yep. You've had cancelled for COVID. On we go. Uh, the Women's World Cup is about to get going. Um, a little bit of good news for Australia, England, Pakistan, South Africa, West Indies. They all got out of quarantine three days early because the rules changed while they were in there. So ten days became seven days. Uh, bad luck, Bangladesh had already done their ten days and just finished <laughs> up, and they got out. But there was also this uh, absurd thing that we heard about that the South African men's team, which was staying in the same hotel as the England women's team, the, the South African men were allowed to go out and train before their test matches against New Zealand that are coming up. Um, the England women's team were not allowed to go out and train. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I think it was. I think there were about four or five of the teams were staying there. It might have actually been Australia, England, Pakistan, South Africa, the Windies, who yeah. were in that hotel at the same time. But, they were. but the point is, is that yeah, I mean, I'm not. You know, what, what, what do they say? Conspiracy or cock up? It's usually cock up. I, I would. It's almost certainly a cock up that they just haven't. Mm. For whatever reason, the connection wasn't made with the New Zealand government. Remembering that the ICC don't get to just make these decisions unilaterally. Far from it. It's going mm. to be um, decisions taken by um, the equivalent of the, well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what the well, what the department's called in New Zealand that, that oversees the pandemic response and all the rest of it. But, um, but, but still, the very idea that South Africa's men had cleared these. Um, cleared these hurdles mm. and they were permitted to leave and train during their quarantine period and women who are in their country for a World Cup were not. I mean, yeah, they've got lucky being released after seven days but imagine they did have to sit in their hotel for 10 days like Bangladesh did. I mean, it just reinforces that this tournament really shouldn't be in New Zealand um, and that's no reflection on New Zealand, by the way. I put this on Twitter during the week. They, that The New Zealand government was returned with a thumping majority last year, which you have to interpret as a mandate for the, the way they've dealt with the, the, the pandemic. So that, that it's much like it was with WA. The WA government had a thumping majority when they went to the polls early last year. So I suppose with that, I'm, I'm simply making the point that, uh, you know, if a state or, or, or a jurisdiction wants to handle things a certain way, Fair play to them. Do what you need to do. Service your people the way they want to be serviced. But it does mean that much as it was with the Perth Test match and other sporting events that the WA have had to miss out on recently, I think the same standard should have been held for New Zealand. I mean, imagine there is a COVID outbreak during this World Cup. I mean, just consider that. What would be the repercussions if, say, four or five players picked up COVID in a couple of teams who are in the same hotel or something like that, that could easily happen with Omicron, as we know. Even if we have gone beyond the spike, that could still easily happen. That could throw this competition in, into jeopardy entirely. Uh, and it feels unnecessary to me when they could have played it in Australia or, or they could have played it potentially in the UAE. Uh, but they've, they've stuck to their guns. They're in New Zealand. And yeah, that quirk, that anomaly with uh, the women having to stay put when the men could get out kind of underlined mm. that point for me. I suppose it might also be to do with uh, it, it would be a much bigger task for the ICC to negotiate, say, getting that exemption for eight teams with 
a full squad's worth of players, you know, you, you're up yeah, over 100 yeah. people that they've got to accommodate then to to get out, have the transport, have the, the the degree of whatever sort of degree of bubble protection they've got to make sure there's no risk, et cetera, et cetera, rather than dealing with one test squad, um, which, which would be a more manageable enterprise. But yep. the England women's schedule is out and they will be playing at Lords. We've been banging on about this for a while, uh, that they need to have a match at Lords. There'll be a one-dayer at Lords and there will be a test match against South Africa. They're back at Taunton, which is the bad news because last time they played a women's test there, it was, in polite terms, a shit heap. But, you know, hopefully they can put a bit of juice into the track this time around and, and make it for a better contest. I'm sure they will. So that's a multi-format series as we, uh, well, as Heather Knight have forecast on the final word, uh, ex- world exclusive on the show two weeks ago, whatever it was, three weeks ago, that they'll, they'll have 10 days of cricket against South Africa. Um, they'll have the Commonwealth Games, of which are, that's all on free-to-air television. And then India are back for, for another white ball series, three one-dayers and, and three T20s. So those one-dayers will be part of the, the ICC Women's Championship and they're in the they're they're being scheduled in in mid to late September and yeah I think the last one day international is at Lords so um, they've done some tweaking to the Lords schedule uh, a number of announcements were made by the MCC today including that the the Cambridge Oxford and the Eton Harrow games will no longer be at Lords each year as of 2023 which I think is a good thing. Um, I know there's been a big campaign to get the varsity game for women on Lords as well as the men, but my view's always been, why is the men's game on there to begin with? Why is there a university fixture or a school fixture on at Lords when women barely get the chance to play there at all? The England women haven't played at Lords since the World Cup final of, of 2017. So that's a great step in the right direction. They're also playing a one-day international up at Durham. So I know Durham isn't like, isn't kind of Edgbaston or Trent Bridge, but it is an international venue. They do play test cricket there from time to time so that that's it's a bigger ground in terms of capacity so and good for the north too not a lot of women's cricket gets played in what you would call the true north you get a lot in the midlands but not a lot up at um in yorkshire or lancashire or or, or durham so uh, they get their opportunity there at, at chestler street so um, yeah it's going to be a huge summer so um yeah south africa to start in june that aforementioned multi-format series the commonwealth games then india and you throw in there the rachel hayho flint trophy the charlotte edwards cup and the 100, uh, there'll be a lot of very tired uh, England players by the end of the summer, and that's a great thing. That is, I mean, you know, I think a lot of them over the years have, would, would would love to get to, you know, the end of September and be completely knackered, and they will be this year. Uh, they'll be earning their money uh, throughout the course of the summer, which is great. Could we just spare a thought, though, for the, the Eton schoolboys who, who will miss out? <laughs> all they want is the opportunity to play at Lords. They're just asking for an opportunity. That's all. That's all. They're just ambitious young men. Just, just seeking a chance, a chance to get ahead in life. That's all they need, Adam. A chance what is to it? get ahead. Is, is, I think it's forty thousand quid for a year's tuition there, or something like that. I mean, mm. bloody hell! Hey, we skipped over one thing before, by the way. It's that um, New Zealand are playing one day as against India at the moment to prepare for the World Cup. Yeah, and uh, and the White Ferns have won both of them. Uh, a Susie Bates ton uh, in the first one. Amelia Kerr, one hundred and nineteen not out in the second. Amelia didn't come. To England last year, she stayed home uh, to tend to her mental health 
uh, yeah, a couple of fifties for Mathali Raj for the visitors. But I mean, I think that's really important. A, it's it's great for India that they've been able to game the system in such a way that, much as it was before the twenty twenty T twenty World Cup when they played a tri series before the the formalities began, they're getting the chance to play all these one days against the, the home team. So they'll be battle hardened and they they won't be sort of uh, leaving it to the last minute like those teams we referred to before. But but also, mm. I mean, you know, we've been very worried that New Zealand. Uh, will will bottle it again, and look, maybe they will. But what a great way to start to have two pretty good victories against a a, a very competitive Indian team. Yeah, side so that's supposed to be a contender. Um, ordinary run chase in the first one, although they were chasing a big score, two seventy five. But who saw Amelia Curve going up to first drop and making an, another unbeaten yeah. ton? I, I think we've we've all. You know, we all came to the conclusion that that a double hundred against a, a pretty weak Irish team was a flash in the pan, um, and she's been good with the bat at sort of six or or so in in the T Twenty side, without being someone you'd rely on to make huge scores. But did it and did it in a run chase as well um, to make sure they got home. So great signs uh, there ahead of the home World Cup. Thoughts on Madali? I mean, I haven't seen these these innings, but I've seen the scorecards and I've seen Twitter a little bit. I don't think you're allowed to criticise Madali Raj. Izzy Westbury did it, and she was accused of being a colonialist yesterday. So um, you've got to be mm. careful about what you say. But you know, oh, I mean, she's still making runs. I thought she was okay. I thought she was um, she was because I did see a bit of it. She was less slow than she was in I can remember the first game against Australia when they were touring here last year there are points where you're sort of shouting at the TV going just find a single you know but mm, mm. she had a little bit more purpose um they, they didn't seem like problematic like occasionally there are Mathali 50s where you go maybe that's helped stave off a larger margin of defeat but it's not a it's not a helpful half century in terms of winning the match. This didn't seem like that. Okay. Okay. Well, she'll be leading that Indian team uh, all the way through the tournament, I am sure. We were recording the, the show last week. It feels like old news, but as soon as we hit stop last week, uh, we found out about a quarter of an hour later that, that Stuart Broad and James Anderson have been dropped from the England test team uh, from nowhere, really. I mean, the, I mean... The news was leaked out a little bit. A number of reporters had it before they made the formal call on it. But nevertheless, I mean, it does feel a bit cooked to me that after England have been, you know, routed in Australia, they've sort of lost 99 wickets at 1890s strike rates and averages and all the rest of it, that they would then see fit to remove Anderson, who is still their best bowler, and Broad, who was very important in, in the final two test matches. And Broad responded in his column in the Mail on Sunday in, in the way that Stuart Broad does best in. Um, he, he's clearly very bruised by the whole uh, experience. And the whole thing winds up being, despite all, all the fresh faces we're seeing in the squad, in all probability, it'll be the same attack in the first test in the Windies that we saw at the Gabba, Wood, Wokes, Leach and Robinson, which, I mean, you know, uh, I, I don't know whether Progress. they've gained an awful lot from that. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's one thing. I mean, they might play Sakiba Mood and Matthew Fisher, who knows, but mm-hmm. it feels in all probability that based on seniority, they'll, they'll stick with uh, uh, the guys who are in Australia who aren't Anderson and Broad. Difference is it'll be Wood, Wokes, Leach, Robinson, but they won't have left out Broad and Anderson in the squad for people to be angry about. They've just left them out of the squad altogether. So this is this is the brainchild of... So Andrew Strauss has come in to take over on an interim basis and to run the selection panel. They've gone back to a panel 
temporarily and all the rest of it until they work out what they're doing, which colour socks they're wearing. Then uh, far be it from me to question Andrew Strauss. I mean, he's got a knighthood, so they don't just hand those out to anybody. You know, that has to mean something. Just, just an opportunity. They're just looking for an opportunity. Um, but <laughs> it, it, it makes no sense whatsoever to me, unless there's some sort of background politics that we don't know about and there's you know sometimes chat about the the influence and the grumpiness and so on of of of, of senior players in in the dressing room and you can work out who they are but broad was one of the few players who actually showed some fight on the tour who actually you know put in anderson's as good as he has been for years how does it help you you've got a batting side that facing a score of 267 lost by an innings You've got a batting side that lost in two and a half days in Hobart. England's batting is fucking terrible. England's bowling is okay. You would have thought if you have like half your team is really good and then the other half is not really good, you focus your attention on the half that's not really good. And yet they're going to head over there with you know a bunch of the same batting side that'll be root best yeah. crawley dan lawrence going over there ollie pope going over there ben stokes like what changes uh, uh, look uh, y- yes and no yes and no I, I i take your point that there's a disproportionate amount of focus on the bowling they did make eight changes to the Ashes squad and it did include um butler and burns and hamid for example who were who mm-hmm. were part of the top six more than they weren't across that tour and they have brought in Alex Lees from, from Durham, who ex-Yorkshire. Um, I mean, it's not as though he had... I mean, put it this way. It's not as though his summer last year was good enough to get him on the Ashes tour. So well, let's keep mm. things in perspective. But he will open the batting uh, in that series. And I mentioned Matthew Fisher, who's a bit of a smoky from Yorkshire. He was that guy, you might remember, Jeff, who, who made his first class debut at like 15. And I think he set a bunch of records. I think he might have even featured on, on Storytime at some stage for that um, some some years ago and Sakiba Mood and Matt Parkinson who we've been crying out for um, for well I've been crying out for for at least a year saying you've got to play these two blokes and I hope they play I mean I hope they play I hope they're not glorified tourists I hope they don't get to the end of the Windies tour and say uh, gee that's Sakiba Mood gee he's um, he'll go okay in the home summer because in the home summer in all probability Anderson and Broad will get their opportunities again so they've got to mm. they've got to give them a chance here away from home and the rationale that, that Strauss issued when he fronted the media to talk about this was that they want to build a team that can win away from home long term and they need to get players participating away from home and I suppose what they're signalling there is that they don't see Broad and Anderson playing much more cricket away they might keep playing at home for a couple of years I don't like mm. them being grouped together though I, I, I'm frustrated by this Broad is four years younger than Anderson and I know they you know have been a great partnership together opening the bowling for England but there is no reason why they need to retire on the same day a la you know uh, Ambrose and Walsh type thing uh, mm. or, or other great combinations who've who've pulled the pin together. Indeed, Ambrose and Walsh didn't retire together, did they? Because Walsh came out to Australia for the for the yep. following year. But the point I'm making is... is and that played South Africa to go past 500 test wickets. Yes, um, yes. But they played their last test in England together. Yeah, last test in England together. So that's not a great example, but it's happened before where, where two bowlers uh, have this symbiotic relationship. Misbar and Eunice. Misbar and Eunice is probably the better way of putting it. But yeah, it does... It, it does strike me that, I mean, Stuart Broad has every reason to be furious that he's just being badged with the bloke who's 39. And Anderson, as well, has has reason to be 
frustrated at the fact that he still remains statistically England's most dangerous bowler. He had a fabulous 2021, uh, and yet he, he's not been given the chance to, to do his thing in the West Indies. So, yeah, they, they've both got a claim uh, at the moment, and I, and I reckon we'll see them both again in the home summer. Wasn't it curious that Strauss said that they didn't want to make the, the proper call on either of them until they had the new managing director of cricket in position and the new full-time coach? But they've made this massive call as the interim selection mm. committee with Strauss uh, and Paul mm. Collingwood and James Taylor with the assistance of Joe Root is on there as well. That's a huge call to make as an interim group before they bed down who, who the full-time committee are going to be. With with the stated objective of it being a long-term future planning thing. Um, mm. So, mm. yeah, if you're, if you're deferring decisions because you're temporary, then how are you taking long-term future planning decisions? And if you've got two guys who are who only play test cricket, who get rested, you know, who don't invest in the other formats so they can be right to play test cricket and then you don't play them when you're playing test matches. Uh, it, it just feels cosmetic to me. It feels like they, they felt like they had to do something and the mm. easiest thing to do was chop a couple of the old blokes because, you know, that was more likely to make it seem like they'd taken some drastic action. Yeah, yeah, that... that that lines up for me as well. It was to it was to be seen to be doing the right thing, and to be seen to be doing the right thing is important, right? Uh, in in public life, I suppose it's not just about doing the right thing, but you know that's a, an old thing they talk about with the courts, isn't it? it needs to be seen to be doing justice as well. But um, yeah, I, I agree with you. This this was more for the press release than it was for the pitches that they'll be served up in the Caribbean next month. All right, before we come to the break and then to Ben Jones, let's take a quick detour through a little game of what we like to call Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. It's a game that we play with all the people on our Patreon page. This is about numbers. It's about cricket. They support the show. They send us a contribution, a financial contribution that is a number that is not a normal number that you would expect to be associated with money, but it's a cricket number and we have to work out what the number means. That's right. And the number that is next on the list and thus uh, featuring on our weekly show this week, what is it? Season 11, episode 17. We've made a lot of this over the last six years, Jeff, uh, is Tony W. Uh, and Tony's number is 380 in AUD. There's no clue. Uh, I've got a feeling I know what it might be, but Jeff, you're going to answer it. Tony, uh, I hope they give him the Ange Christ Christo Wolf at the MCG <laughs> when Tony W gets the ball running down the wing. Uh, three, well, okay, 380, when you see 380, it's like when you see 375 and they're twinned in a lot of ways. The, the, the mm. thing that jumps out at you is it, it must be about Matthew Hayden. The other thing that occurred to me is it could be about Bob Holland, who debuted at the age of 38. Oh, I like that. Um, he's not the oldest Australian to debut, as, as anyone who listens to the show would know. Don Blackie and Bert Ironmonger both debuted at the age of 46, but Bob Holland is the third oldest Australian to debut. So if Bob Holland can debut at 38, Jimmy Anderson can keep getting picked at 39. <laughs> but given we've had such a, a JL focus, a Justin Langer focus over the last few weeks, it's probably right to talk about Matthew Hayden now uh, to twin that, the time that Hayden made 380. Batting first at the Wacker, his little mate, JL, got out for 23. Um, absolutely went to town too. He's, I think he hit about five boundaries in about 10 balls at one point. Justin Langer at the start of that innings against Zimbabwe didn't rate them clearly and then got knocked over by Sean Irvin. 
But by the time Hayden gets out, Australia have 735 on the board. It's, it's a somewhat painful exercise, but it was interesting sort of because I, I watched it all back in preparation for this segment. I mean, not ball by ball, but, you know, I watched what was available in the, the sort of longer form online. And it's it tallies with my memory of it, which is that, yeah, Hayden made 380 and he hit a lot of sixes. Um, it's, it's not like he went out there and just blitzed them early. He played a proper cautious, conservative sort of test innings. He was 46 of 106 balls, for instance, at one point. Was about 180 by the end of the first day, I think. Uh, and and the trademark of this innings is just hitting straight down the ground. He's just like big straight drives along the ground and then starts lofting them over the bowler's head here and there. But it's not like he's just going out there slogging everything. Um, he comes out on the second morning and doesn't start very well either. He's twitchy and he's poking around. He's thinking about making a double hundred in Australia um, probably and, and seems a little bit nervy and then sort of eventually takes a while to get going but gets going again. And then it starts to open up. He's still batting in the cap when he gets to 300 because he's facing spin from both ends. So he gets that nice, um, you know, it's, it's good It's good when your moment on the footage can have you rating the bat mm. wearing the, the beaten up old cap. But the pacing of the innings, because uh, I had a look through all the scoring, he didn't hit a six in the first hundred runs. Hit three sixes in the second hundred and then hit the other eight sixes after he'd reached 200. So he really opened up late in the day. Um, huge response when he got to 375, when he got past 375 and got the world record. And I think it's easy to forget what a big deal that was at the time because the, the 375 had stood for 10 years at that point and it was iconic. It was so associated with the genius of Lara and the idea that nobody else could match it that, somebody going past it in any circumstances seemed extraordinary there's some great shots of classic dizzy gillespie on the balcony where he's got the the long ringlets and the proper early 2000s speed dealers <laughs> sort of silver silver plastic frame you know little wrap arounds um, some real horrific stuff also some classic work from cricket australia where in their version of the highlights for this innings they don't actually show hayden getting out they just show him <laughs> raising the record for like for going to 376 with a single down the ground and then that's it <laughs> he retired at that point lived happily ever after he never got out. He did get out slog sweeping a fairly average off spinner called Trevor Gripper out to deep backward square leg and uh, Stuart Carlisle, I think it was, who, who, who took the catch coming in. Remember Trevor Gripper? It's a good name for a, for a spinner, I suppose, but probably a better name for a first slip. But, um, yeah, he'd, uh, he and Ray Price had bowled a lot of spin to Hayden at the Wacker. I'm not sure why they went with two spinners at the Wacker, but um, they went for a lot of sixes as well. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting innings because, I mean, it's, it's, it's nobody's fault, but... It is probably the reason why we haven't seen Bangladesh or Zimbabwe play test cricket in Australia again. So Dan Bredig has this in his book, the Bradman to Packer book, that um, that Packer was absolutely furious that this was on his station. I mean, he didn't care that Hayden was making the runs, but more how uncompetitive it was. Uh, and, and that message was heard loud and clear <laughs> where decisions were being made at, at Cricket Australia headquarters and had as probably, as I say, had a disproportionate effect on what's been possible uh, thereafter with teams that are considered to be uncompetitive. But remembering that this series was played in the October of 2003, which was very unusual. So we had the uh, the top-end test matches against Bangladesh, 
um, in the July of 03. These were played in the October of 03 before the uh, the four test uh, matches against India. And then in 04, they went back up to Darwin. I think it was Darwin for the uh, two tests against um, yeah. Sri Lanka. So we had two years when there was this approach. Darwin of and Cairns. Darwin and Cairns, that's right, where this approach was taken of trying to fit test cricket into unusual parts of the calendar. And after two years, they sacked the whole thing off. And as I say, if you, if you work through the breading thesis, it's because of this innings and, and the dissatisfaction from the powers yeah. that be that having completely uncompetitive test cricket on television wasn't of any use to them commercially, I well, suppose. Well, they still played five Ashes tests, screened all of them. <laughs> and uh, Kerry Packer, Adam, was very fond of giveaways. I, I know this because I used to work at Crown Casino <laughs> many years ago. And uh, and at Christmas, every Christmas, it, every employee of Crown got a, a big hamper from Kerry with a card in it. From I don't think he signed them personally, but it was ostensibly made out to to us from Kerry um, with a you could you could get a, a big ham or a, a turkey or like three kilograms of smoked salmon um, and then you get all your other bits and pieces in the hamper it was a good deal but we have a similar giveaway in that we we give away a, a slab of brick lane every week well twice a week really to uh, whoever comes in on nerd pledge and so Tony W this is now yours to give away you can give it away to yourself or you can give it away to someone else uh, when brick lane get in touch with you yes Tony W this is your life, uh, your life in beer, bricklanebrewing.com. They're our friends. They do good things. They make great beer. They make award-winning beer, uh, both internationally and nationally recognised uh, in different competitions in, in recent times. They are, they've got the wind behind their back. So it's a, a good time, a great time for us to be in association with them. We love them. Um, you can probably visit them now as well, I would have thought. The the different restrictions that are brought in around Omicron and all the rest of it have, have largely subsided. So um, I'd expect that if it's not open now, that the Queen Victoria Market uh, tap house will be soon. So be sure to get down there and, and enjoy a brew. Um, they uh, supplied plenty of beer for the uh, final word game a couple of weeks ago, Jeff, that you were playing in there at Sydney. So, And as we say all the time, um, they employ lots of local staff, they use local produce and uh, they are uh, doing the right thing by the environment uh, with the emphasis they have on on the way they make their beer. So uh, good people doing good things. And now, Tony, you can partake in a slab of their beer or send it to someone that you love in Australia. Right. Uh, It is time for a break. Uh, A couple of minutes and then we'll be back with Ben Jones. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Jeff, uh, last week I, I, I mentioned, I floated that Winnie would be getting a Woodstock cricket bat for her birthday and then it arrived and it must be the most beautiful bit of kit that I've ever seen. I thought for a two-year-old, the bat would be like a, a memorabilia bat, one of those little replica mm. bats that, that has a, a, a thin handle and is sort mm. of a, a fifth of the size width-wise. But no, they have just shaved down a proper serious piece of bat, um, you know, huge fat edges, uh, the whole bit uh, with a lovely handle. And I did give it to Winnie just as we were doing uh, the cake, actually. And uh, she she did drop it on her foot at one stage. Uh, and it is 
isn't as light as one of those replica bats, so she had a bit of a cry then. But over the last two days, she's loved it. And because of the stickers, it's just the, the W for Winnie as well. Yeah. So it's got the Woodstock on the back, the W on the front. <laughs> um, I'll send you a photo of it. It is a work of art. So thank you to them. But that says a fair bit about the personal touch you get with Woodstock Cricket, woodstockcricket.co.uk. We spend a lot of time saying that they are uh, a very affordable uh, company to work with considering they have the two best bats in England as of last year's Good Gear Guide uh, and they make sure they um, give you the personal touch and uh, in my case it was for my baby but for most people it would be, be about the bat they want to take out there on a Saturday and they will also look after you one-to-one. Well, Winnie, if in training to play in, in, in years to come, will need to learn to deal with the sand shoe crasher. And so dropping yes. it on her foot is probably early acclimatisation <laughs> training for that. They had to get Winnie's measurements, height, uh, style of play, strong zones, hot zone, top of off stump. Did you hear that? Really I, I, I'm sure you picked up from the Discord channel that I botched that last week. When, when talking about yeah. the measuring her, I said that she was um, from, from floor to waist 40 inches and it was explained to me that she would need to be about six foot tall if she was 40 inches from uh, not, not a... Um, poor mother. Not, not two and a half <laughs> no. feet tall. No, 40 centimetres. 40 um, centimetres, yeah. that's right. You, you made the classic NASA error. Uh, remember <laughs> that story about them sending the Mars rover, what, $2.1 billion or whatever to, to drop off the drone on Mars and then um, somebody had calculated the landing gear in um, inches instead of centimetres oh. uh, and, and, and so the whole thing just tipped over as soon as it got there and <laughs> couldn't. I did not know that. Mm. Mm. Yep. Yes, yep. yes. Can happen. Can hey. sneak through. So, look, the point is um, personalised personalized service. What kind of game you play, what kind of style uh, you are as a player, what size and, and shape and, and uh, mode and technique you are, all of those things are different. So you talk to Woodstock, you get on Zoom with them or you go to their showroom and you talk them through your game. They will ask you all the right questions. They will make sure you get just the right bat. And then you get 20% off with TFW20 at check out easy as can be go and do it yeah and just to add to that if you're in australia you might think oh, it's a very england centric conversation we're having here about the showroom it is still going to be a shitload cheaper than going into a generic cricket shop in in a, in a capital city and picking up a, a stick off the shelf you will do better because of the 20 percent discount and the fact that woodstock try and have more affordable bats you will do better out of this than you will just going to a bat shop so uh, consider that i know this isn't necessarily the time of year that you'll be thinking about next year's bat but but maybe it is maybe you're getting towards uh, the end of a long season and you're thinking about replacing your kit no better time woodstockcricket.co.uk tfw20 at the price bar hi i'm ian chapel you're listening to the final word with adam collins and jeff lemon it's Fighter Word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And we have a returning guest indeed, someone who's been on the show many times, loved by us uh, in the Fighter Word community. It's Crickvis' new head of media. Uh, it, it, congratulations on the job title boost and the, uh, I suppose, the uh, the extra coin that might be coming your way, Ben James. <laughs> uh, it's been a huge weekend for you. It's been the IPL auction, the mega auction, the PSL's in full swing. We thought, what better time to get you on? How are you going? I'm going very well. Yeah, I'm all T20'd up to the eyeballs. Um, yeah, thank you for that congratulations. In reality, it means very little. It just means that I have I, I, I have more responsibility and uh, have to do slightly less of the nitty-gritty stuff, which is ideal. But I can just spend all of that free time essentially watching the IPL auction. So, <laughs> you know, I'm just redistributing my time very uh, very straightforwardly. Um, but, yeah, it's, 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 it's quite an exciting 
time in lots of ways. You know, we're, we're in a bit of a lull in terms of international cricket. And so we can focus solely on the important stuff, i.e. franchise T20 crickets. <laughs> a nice way to annoy like 80% of our audience right there. But, uh, but, but, but let's start with that in mind. I mean, I think it's reasonable to say that Jeff and I are not across the T20 franchise leagues as much as we are other parts of the game. That's not through disrespect. It's just there's not enough time to be across every inch of the sport. So getting you on uh, this week is partly to run through what we should be looking at with the IPL auction. A lot of you know sound and a lot of... Uh, heat in in some of the discussions but I thought where we might begin is the biggest story so Ishan Kishan uh, going for the fourth highest price tag in IPL history Shay Asaya going for big money at KKR Hasaranga going to RCB as a foreign spinner these seem to be the prevailing stories that were were getting a lot of coverage uh, through the course of the weekend when the mega auction was taking place so can you put that in perspective of what is the mega auction and why this is different to an ordinary year well, yeah, so if you're, if you're not really familiar with the auction structure at all, basically every few years, it's either three or four, it was meant to be before last season, but because of COVID, it was it was delayed. But generally, it's it's every three or four years. And essentially, all the IPL teams are pretty much torn up and you have to start again. You're allowed to retain a certain number of players. It's either three or four, and there's restrictions on, you know, how many overseas players you can you can keep and combinations therein. You know, you've got to, you've got to abide by certain rules. So you can keep a core, but basically you've got to rebuild your side from scratch. And so what happens is this mad two days in in a hotel in Bangalore where everyone is absolutely scrabbling and coming up with all these different strategies to try and rebuild a side for the next four years. And normally that's because there's a view that, you know, you've got three auctions down the line and if a player retires or you release a player, there's always the option to, you know, try and recover and change the, change your personnel a little bit. You know, if you, you sign someone and they have a dud year like Aaron Finch did a couple of years ago for RCB, you can just throw them back and then go and buy someone else. But you don't get the same pool of players to choose from because other franchises are keeping them all. And so all that quality is kind of locked away. So it's disproportionately important for four years normally. What's particularly interesting about this one is that there's a lot of rumours swirling around that this might be the last ever mega auction. With the expansion to 10 teams, the IPL is going in one direction in terms of it's taking up more and more space in the calendar. I mean, you talk to people who know their stuff more than me, and they're saying that in the next five years, it wouldn't be a surprise if there were two IPLs a year, if it was two shorter ones rather than one ever-expanding, you know, sprawling one. And so the influence is only only going in one way, and the recruitment is going to change. They think there's going to be more of a football-style, like a soccer-style transfer window where you basically just go and buy players from the opposition, and you kind of recruit players in that way. And so it's disproportionately important, again, that you nail this mega auction, Mm. you get your squad right now, because in a couple of years' time, the way that you get your players in is going to be so different. And so you can't rely on, oh, well, you know, we'll rebuild in four years' time. You might not have the clout, you might not have the money, you might not have the appeal. Um, Certain franchises find it very easy to get people to come and play for them, and certain ones really don't. And if you are in in the latter camp, it was so important that you got this one right, because otherwise you were going to find it very difficult to have anyone good play for you across the next two, three years. So, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a mad week, of, a mad couple of days and of, of essentially everyone scrabbling to try and future-proof their, their franchises. It's, it's, it's mad. It's, it's amazing, but it, it is a bit mad. Do players actually care where they go or, or who they play for? Like, I know it would be nice to win the thing but when someone says we'll give you 1.6 million US dollars to come and play for us for six weeks or whatever it is like surely you're not really fussed which team you end up at I think there's an extent to which if you are paid silly money you don't really care 
But these players, if you're a 23-year-old kid and you're being paid like low to middle money and you're trying to navigate your career, you're trying to build your reputation, you want to be able to pin a couple of winner's medals to your chest. You want to be able to work with good coaches. You know, some of the coaches in the IPL have better, much better reputations than others and there are certain franchises for a while now that have really struggled and had a, a reputation as being somewhat kind of calamitous. And, you know, the, the one that springs to mind is probably Punjab, who've struggled. They've changed, they've changed their name, but they've not changed an awful lot else in recent time. And their fortunes have been consistently mediocre. And I think what uh, they've struggled to do is attract players who are kind of building their reputation and or kind of on the on the rise and as a result they lost Kale Rahul he, he, he decided to return down his retention they wanted to keep to keep him as their kind of franchise player essentially their kind of iconic I'm you know I'm Mr Punjab and he's left because he was like well this 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 club is not run appropriately seemingly this, this I'm not going to get success here I want to be the next MS Dhoni I want to be I want to be the next great Indian captain I can't do that here, so I've had to leave. So, to an extent, there's always that pull of, you know, here's, here's 1.6 mil, come and hit a ball for a couple of weeks. But if you're aware of the wider context that it's all happening within, the specifics do matter. And you see that we'll, we'll talk about Archer in a bit, and I think there's a fair bit of that going on, that he wants to go and play for Mumbai, because why wouldn't you want to go and play for Mumbai and Mahela and win, win a couple of poles, and all of a sudden you're not just the best T20 seamer in the world, you're playing with the other best T20 seamer in the world and you've, you're the most decorated player and all of a sudden your reputation and your legacy is entirely different than just a lad who could land a few Yorkers better than anyone else for a couple of years. There's this really interesting phenomenon which, I mean, even from as an outsider, which I consider myself to be with the IPL, can pick up on where there's a reluctance to pick up overseas spinners in favour of going with the local spinners and thus saving money. There's an efficiency there um, with some rare exceptions. So I, met, I mentioned Hasaranga before. We might go into that. So let, let's compare and contrast. Why do RCB uh, go all in on him? Uh, whereas Adam Zampa, who is seemingly one of the best uh, T20 spinners in the world at the moment, certainly as far as international leagues are concerned, and Adil Rashid, who played in the IPL last year, both can't get a gig. Just, just run through why that would be so. Yeah, it's quite, a, it's quite a kind of simple little market efficiency thing um, without wishing to be too dull. It's basically just that India produces a lot of really good spinners and it doesn't produce that many reliable quicks. There are, there's a lot of talent there, particularly with some of the younger kids coming through, guys like Avesh Khan, Prasad Krishna. These are guys who have raw materials and will improve, but fundamentally they're not as good as their overseas counterparts. And so there's a, a clear emphasis on recruiting overseas quicks. And if, if you do that, you have fewer overseas spots and less money to recruit overseas spinners. So you focus on your domestic spin. So that's why guys like Adil Rashid and Adam Zampa, who are objectively fantastic players, objectively really good bowlers. I mean, Zampa tore up the World Cup six months ago. We know that these guys have the quality. It's just that within the squad construction context, it's quite difficult to get him in. It's quite difficult to fit him into a side. It's not impossible, and I do think it's a surprise that guys like Noor Ahmed have been given a, given, given a go and slightly more inexperienced spinners um, who are still overseas, still taking up a spot, still an obstacle, or still have all those obstacles that we just spoke about. And so I do think there's maybe, maybe other issues as well, just in terms of reliability or whatever. And with Australians, there's always a slight concern about availability. They, they often pull out. They often kind of don't, can't be relied upon to play the whole comp. 
Um, but then you get guys like William Hasaranga, as you say, who RCB went absolutely massive on um, because he is an overseas spinner who can also bat. He's a guy who can bat anywhere, you know, from you know number four to number seven. He can float up and down within the context of RCB's side. He's really useful because they've got a lot of pace hitters. He's a very good spin hitter, so he he, he is quite a nice guy to build a side around. When you're looking at overseas players, often it's how they they contribute to the process of building a side. So someone like Glenn Maxwell is obviously a genius. We all love Glenn Maxwell. And if he was just a batsman who offered nothing else, he would be really valuable. But the fact that he is a hitter of spin who can also bowl a bit of off spin makes him disproportionately important to a side because because those players are really, really in demand because there aren't many of them. And so that's why you get guys like Hasaranga going for, for bigger money. I, I should also say, um, obviously... Uh, my colleague and very good friend Freddie Wilde was on the RCB auction table and I know that he is a huge fan of Hasaranga that was to an extent driven by Fred but all of our numbers suggest that it's not just that Hasaranga is a guy who is uh, is maybe you know contextually useful and oh he ticks a few boxes it's that he's actually just a really gun leg spinner who is probably going to be in the next two years one of the two or three best leg spinners in the world. So sometimes it's not it's not all about the kind of auction dynamics and the clever stuff. It's just this guy's absolutely class. <laughs> and so there's a bit there's a bit of that as well. And there was that interesting bit with Fred when the bidding was going on for Hasaranga and it was getting hot and heavy and, and the auctioneer hit the deck and thankfully he was okay but uh, there was Freddie who was uh, his uh, humanity shone through and even though he was in the middle of this auction he could tell he was very worried about the guy who'd um, who'd collapsed at the at the uh, at the pulpit yeah it was it was a, that was a very strange moment it was a very surreal weekend <laughs> for all kinds of reasons on that on that front but that particular five minutes of watching Castorango go for massive money and then all of a sudden yeah the auctioneer collapsed and as you say is completely fine that, that that few minutes of Fred being the uh, the face of that was was quite quite strange quite surreal yes. Um, but, but I mean, on on Hasaranga, I think what it what stands out to me is that we're at a stage now where the IPL has lost a, a bank of golden era stars. There's no Gale, there's no Watson, there's no AB. These like mark hugely marketable first generation guys. There's no Suresh Reiner. There's you know these guys who are mm. were essentially the faces of the tournament. We're going into the next generation of T20 cricket now, particularly the IPL. And there is a, an, an acknowledgement, I think, that you need to find the next generation of stars. You need to you know, find the next franchise players, the guys you build a decade around. And Hasaranga, is, that's not why they've, they've signed him. And I, I don't think it's why anyone's exclusively signed anyone. But there's got to be a, an acknowledgement or a, at least a consideration that you need players who you can build around for a long time because those bankable guns... That process of just saying, I'm going to get A.B. de Villiers in because he's the best T20 batsman in the world, that's no longer an option. And so there's a, there's a potential reward if you can be ahead of the curve and spot that, those, uh, those next-generation talents before everyone else. I mean, Hasarang is not a, he's not a quiet, under-the-radar guy. He's, you know, he's just smashed up the World Cup with bat and ball. But at the same time, he's, not, you know, he's played a couple of games of IPL and, and kind of got whacked. So gambling on him, is a, it is a gamble. It's not, you're, not, you're not buying a proven quality. And I think that was the... Well, I mean, we can talk about the fact that the, the IPL going to 10 teams has massively changed the dynamic of buying players because it's so much more volatile. No one really knows how much anyone was worth because before you'd had this grooved process of like, OK, well, we know that with eight teams and these players and this number of players in the pool, this guy's going to go for this, this, this. 10 teams, suddenly it's changed it massively and the talent is so much more evenly spread. You look at the sides, there's, there's, there's not much between them. Like the, normally you pick out Mumbai are great, 
Rajasthan rules and, uh, and Punjab are, are rubbish and, and everyone, <laughs> in between, everyone in between is kind of good. And actually, and this year, it doesn't really look like that. It looks like the quality is much more evenly spread. The sides are going to be a lot more competitive. And my misgivings around going to a 10-team IPL aside, because I, I, I worry because I think it worked so well before, I've, I'm more reassured now that the quality of the tournament is going to be remain. The cricket might be slightly worse, but the tournament will itself be more competitive and more exciting as a result because you're not going to have Mumbai and Chennai running away with it every year. So much of the buying process is also about players being a double threat or a triple threat if they're really good in the field as well, isn't it? Because if you're if you're taking up an overseas spot, like you say with Hasaranga, you get someone who can bat as well. You know, not necessarily an absolute top liner, but someone who can hit the ball. Someone like Adam Zampa can't really isn't great in the field. You know, is is solid, but you know, isn't going to turn the game for you. And so you'd imagine teams would be much more. Uh, reticent to splash the money on someone who they know will be a 10 or an 11 versus someone, you know, like the the, the value in someone like Sunil Narayan who can go up the order if you need to, who can open the batting or bat three if you want someone to make 20 off 10 balls at some point of the innings. And so that that's what it seems like to me that with the overseas buys, teams want to make sure they get someone who can do both things. Overseas wicket keepers are relatively popular because if you can bat really well and you're a keeper, you can offer them uh, two reasons to have you on the field as well. And, and the same with spinners who can clout the ball, which seems to me why players like Lamachain and and, uh, and Adil Rashid and so on wouldn't have got to go. I think that's a, that is a very fair point. I think you can almost see, see it better in, in the the fight for the all-rounders in the, the the all-rounders that were there the overseas all-rounders were really popular you know Hasaranga is a good example Liam Livingston another great example but then even guys like Jason Holder was locked in very early Holder's a guy with a a solid T- T20 record but not not a world-class one like he's he's he's, good, he's a good useful role player you probably want him as your fourth best overseas if you're playing if you're a really competitive side but he was locked in really early. And then we saw at the end there was this massive scramble for Rajasthan because they weren't able to lock in any overseas all-rounders and they couldn't balance their side. They were looking at it thinking, shit, we're going to have Ravitandra Ashwin at, at number seven or we're going to have Riam Parag as our fifth bowler. You know, neither of those are good those are good situations to be in. And so they just, in a mad dash at the end of the auction, by Nathan Coulton-Isle, Jimmy Neesham and Daryl Mitchell, because they're like, we need all-rounders. And there were just so, there were so few proven guys in the tournament. And that's why you saw guys like Livingston, who's one of the few guys who you can pretty much rely on to bowl four overs and bat in the top six effectively, going for big, big money. And guys, I mean, if Moeen Ali had been in the auction, I, you know, dread to think how much money he would have gone for. It would have been incredible. And that's why Chennai retained him. You know, it's so rare for Chennai to retain an overseas player. They'd love their domestic stars. But they recognise that in the current climate, there's so few players who are in India who are capable of being gun all-rounders. You know, even Hardik Pandya has moved away from being a, a genuine all-rounder to being a batsman who bowls a little bit. You know, guys like Akshar Patel are kind of a little bit of... They're, they're very good bits and pieces players, if you know what I mean. And so that that dream ticket of the guy who can bowl four and bat in the top five, you have to go overseas to get him and you have to spend big. And that's why you end up with Liam Livingston going for 1.6 million or whatever it is. And it's, yeah, it, it's a good time to be able to turn your arm over. <laughs> Let's just drill down a bit uh, into the Australian players. So Glenn Maxwell and Marcus Stoinis were retained after uh, the last round. Um, so you've got... Uh, an interesting point of this was that um, Pat Cummins, Stephen Smith and David Warner, who were all three of them, were, were big ticket 
heavily paid players before who have all effectively taken big haircuts. And in the case of Warner, uh, changing clubs and with Cummins staying put, but nonetheless, uh, there is this volatility there. Can you go through that, why someone like Pat Cummins would not be worth as much now as he was a couple of years ago when he went for the record price? And, and I suppose the uh, the machinations and politics around David Warner leaving Sunrise's Hyderabad, who he was such a superstar for for so long. I, I appreciate that he was dropped last year, but it feels like a pretty big move them effectively letting him go when he was a, one of those franchise stars you mentioned before. I think the Warner thing is, is fascinating because, I mean, he was Mr. Sunrisers. He was that guy. He I know, obviously, he's gone back to Delhi, which is where he started his IPL journey, but he is he is the Sunrisers guy, and he defined their strategy as much as Rashid Khan did or any of the any of the, the, the um, domestic seamers, which they were so famed for. It was all about, you know, that incredible strong local bowling attack, and then Warner basically guaranteeing you, you know, 600 runs a season. For, he essentially had one bad year, one dry year at Sunrisers and by all accounts there were there was a lot of tension behind the scenes and as a result maybe that transition was a bit easier and I do think in, in retrospect it was quite a um, there was quite a cruel twist that he was dropped just before the IPL was camp- was postponed if they'd have held on for a, another week and he, they'd have kind of taken the hit on that really big decision of you know we're going to drop David Warner they might have been able to negotiate that a little bit easier because it would have been postponed and they would wouldn't might have never had to happen and so I think him leaving was always going to happen but I think him going to Delhi as a essentially a kind of slightly budget overseas opener is one of the steals of the auction. I think I, regardless of, you know, the, the, the haircut that he's had to take, which you are right, he's, he's not one of the big stars anymore, but he is still a fantastic player. He is still one of the best overseas openers in the world. And Delhi, have, by locking him in, I think they've gone a long way to creating one of the most exciting top fives. But the point is, is, is Warner is still good enough to command that that pressure and that, that kind of, I'm, I'm still going to soak up the I'm marquee player. And it's, it's bizarre that he's gone that way, but I think it just reflects a, a, the degree to which he fell off a cliff at, at Sunrises last year. I think teams were warned off. I'm surprised they were warned off, given how well he did in the World Cup. But anyway, the, po- the, the other point with, with Smith, I think is fair enough that Smith is just not a great T20 player. And Smith was... Was never he was always overpriced he was always an overpriced player and I think there was a degree to which people over, overestimated how important captaincy was um, and how important maybe his own leadership skills were to what he could bring to bear on a T20 side and so I think they, there's just been a, a kind of a moment of, of realisation collectively that actually this guy just isn't that good and we don't need him as an overseas player we talk about the, the opportunities that are available for domestic batsmen there's so many talented kids coming through it's better to just back back them in rather than go big on Smith Cummins I think is the intriguing one because I don't know how good Pat Cummins is at T20 cricket I've absolutely no idea and I spend a lot of time thinking about it I think again there was a, a leadership uh, tax on when, when Cummins went for big money I think there was a sense that maybe they were buying their, their next captain their next generation guy who was going to see them through the next five six years and actually it hasn't transpired that in the same way because you know various different dynamics of players coming in and players losing form and actually Cummins just doesn't play that much T20 cricket outside of Australia outside of the Australian setup that I think his game has dropped off we've seen it with Stark as well like Stark doesn't play T20 cricket anymore when he's not playing for Australia and suddenly he's going at 10s I think there's a there's a nervousness about these guys who only really play T20 internationals and IPL that they maybe just fall out of the loop slightly but I, I, I think Cummins will still play a huge role because KKR by my reckoning are probably the worst side in the tournament now and he is still very much good enough to demand a starting place 
in that kind of a side and he does balance the team he can bat number eight as a very a very sexy number eight or a slightly gamble number seven and I think you know he still brings all that high pace and all that skill and he's a very versatile bowler bowls in all phases I think that what we've probably seen is just he's just slightly unfashionable at the moment remarkably for Pat Cummins he's just not quite he's not quite there as, as the fashionable Australian quick which is the opposite of Josh Hazelwood who obviously having had the World Cup that he had and suddenly gone for big money to RCB and he's tearing it up uh, in the current T20 series against Sri Lanka he feels like the kind of cool slightly hipstery pick at the moment of like you know Hazelwood's actually the uh, the best of the Australian trio <laughs> rather than whereas whereas a year ago you probably you'd have got laughed out of town for saying that it's interesting how these things change very quickly and maybe we're all a bit too fickle but I think I think that's the that's the general story with the Aussies apart from and I'm sure we're going to come on to him the uh, the big Singaporean yes yes we will come come to him next I will say on the final word we've been saying Hazelwood's got to go to India for two or three years now we were ahead of the curve there <laughs> but yeah the, the large Singaporean the man with two first names uh, Tim David who the Australian national team don't seem interested in uh, getting him involved that that may change but and it's a bit like Ishan Kishan where you know India's been pretty indifferent to him playing in the national team as well but huge money in in this league what do the league teams see in these players that the national teams don't well, on, on Kishan, I think it was just that he was a, he's a young buck who was coming through at Mumbai and he was a bit of a flash Harry and he had a couple of good seasons, but actually they'd kind of maybe gone all in on Pant as their left-handed top-order player and actually they didn't really need another one and, you know, they didn't need an, another inexperienced kid. And when you've got those big beasts of the of the Indian game in Rohit and KL and Virat, you know, it's quite hard to get those guys out the door to get Kishan in. So I think it was less a flaw of Kishan's as a kind of a general conservatism within the international side but far more enjoyably Tim David what a man I'm all in on this guy properly all in on him just this absolute hulking massive bloke who whacks sixes for fun and seemingly went from being completely unknown and a proper little hipster pick to the best finisher in the world he is remarkable it was it was quite funny well I mean he's been tearing it up in domestic leagues for 18 months two years now he is unbelievably good from a tactical point of view he can bat you know in the middle order and at the at the end of the innings as well and he doesn't really have any weaknesses it's you know when we when you're recruiting overseas batsmen you're often looking at what they can kind of protect your own players from you know if Chennai won the IPL last year by getting Faf Duplessis in because of his incredible record against high pace and all of their other guys were struggling against high pace so Faf just dotted up through the innings made 50 or 50 every time but nobody could bank nobody could bounce their middle order out because Faf was there to hook, hook them off his nose every every couple of balls so you got that shield that you got with Faf now David allows you that shield but with all weaknesses because he is essentially brilliant at hitting spin particularly hitting leg spin which is mad for a right-hander he's brilliant at hitting high pace he can pull it off his nose as well he can he can face the those top tier of Lockie Ferguson style quicks and his record is really good he can score all around the ground he's not he's not like a kind of 360 Maxwell player he's a little bit more of a traditional guy I'd say the guy I compare him to most is his new teammate of Mumbai Kyron Pollard he's got that thing of just this huge frame and the bat looks like a toothpick in his hand and he just kind of flicks it with his wrist and all of a sudden the ball's gone 120 meters he's just got this all-round game and it's really difficult to see how sides can actually plan for him and it's you look at his results you know he's striking at 150 and averaging well I mean in the, in the current ongoing PSL he's striking at 200 and averaging 60 I think like this is a guy who is ready for the step up I think that in terms of the Australian setup 
I mean, me and Freddie were talking about this before the World Cup, saying that, you know, Australia desperately need a finisher. They desperately need a finisher. Tim David is that man. And as it is, Australia know more than us. And they, you know, just, they said, well, we've just, we'll just pick loads of guys down the order in Wade and Stoinis and Marsh. And these guys will take care of it. And they did. And they did really well. They came up with a tactical solution rather than a personnel solution. But actually, in the next 12 months, it would be mad if David didn't play for Australia because he is so good. He is so ready for that step up. And, you know, we talk about the, you know, they're going, going back home trying to defend their world title. They can do it without David. But I think if they do pick him, they're right up there with probably the fact they're probably the favourite to that point because he's just so much better than the existing options and the existing options are good Matt Wade and Stoinis and Marsh they're you know, fantastic players I'm just yeah I mean you can tell I'm in the lavender haze with this boy at the moment. <laughs> I, 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 I absolutely I just I can't get enough of him there's just something so fun about when a player goes from unknown to on the fringes of society to okay this guy's quite good actually to all of a sudden really leaping up and starts you know mm. tweeting out the other day like playing playing arenas all of a sudden and I feel like I feel like I've, I've been watching him in the bar fly and all of a sudden he's, he's gone to he's gone to the next tier I'm just I'm all in all in beautiful love the passion yeah he's, uh, he's going to fill a few people in I always get Craig David and accidentally call him Craig David instead of Tim David um, <laughs> just on that um, before we move off Tim David I think there's a sense in associate cricket land which um, we, we dabble in of course on the final word we'd like to stay across associate cricket that it wouldn't be a good thing give the alternative perspective He's playing for Singapore. He's helping them reach new heights. Um, what sort of damage would it do to Singaporean cricket if he went to Australian, uh, went to the Australian team? And by the way, you couldn't begrudge him uh, with all the opportunities that would be open to him if he did play for Australia. But just go to the other side of it for me. It's obviously, uh, yeah, it, it is two-sided. And we shouldn't be drawn into, uh, as I'm probably want to do, focusing too much on the big boys and, yeah, the effect on that. I think it's probably similar in some respects probably not quite the same to when Morgan came over and started playing for England. Um, obviously, Ireland, at the time that Morgan left, were a stronger side than Singapore on now. Um, but at the same time, you do feel like it, 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 it's not necessarily the, the effect on the team itself, it's the message it sends that actually you can come through the, the, that, that system and then just hop off the conveyor belt at the end and you don't have to see it through to the end One, and, and I think that's probably what my, uh, my, my colleague Tim Wigmore would say in terms of you know, the, the associate fans he, he would probably say that you know, the best thing for international cricket is Tim David plays for Singapore and takes Singapore to the World Cup and yeah, does incredibly yeah. well and I, th- and I think we all agree with that. Like that that is undeniably the best solution of all this or the best scenario but I think also it's important to think of it the other way around and actually you want to make it clear to these players who maybe have availability for different teams, for different nations, that actually playing for them and doing well and having success for a number of years isn't necessarily the end of the journey. You can go and give them the benefit of your quality for, your, for a couple of years without it being necessarily a, uh, a full stop on your journey as an international player. Mm. That actually, do if, if the next Tim, if David Tim comes along in three years' time, <laughs> do you want him to feel like he can't play for Singapore because he's going to get vilified for going and playing for Australia in a couple of years' time? Or do you want him feeling comfortable that he can go and do that while he's, you know, 18, 19, 20, still comfortably better than what they've got? And then when the opportunity arises to go and play for another country, um, which does always feel uncomfortable, it does, it's undeniably you know, unpleasant when teams, when players switch nationalities in inverted commas. It never feels nice. But I think the broader uh, kind of positives that 
having these guys play for associate teams bring I think I think it's kind of worth the trade-off later in the, later in their career if that if that makes sense I'm I'm kind of trying to look at it as a more holistic thing rather than necessarily necessarily you know Roy the Rovers Tim Davis hits six sixes off uh, off Mitchell Stark to take Singapore home at the MCG it's uh, sometimes you've got to be a bit a bit broader and a bit more grown up about it and a bit of a holistic approach needs to be taken to the Jofra Archer story as well Ben just before we move off the IPL so Archer's been picked up again obviously Mumbai Indians know that the probability of him playing in 2022 is fairly limited due to that elbow surgery he had three months ago, four months ago now. But this aligned with a story that broke yesterday that Jofra will play in the 100 this year and will play short-form cricket, but probably won't play test cricket. Now, that caused some consternation at the time. Just go through that, uh, and we might just elaborate on how that might play out in the next 12 months or so. Yeah, I, I, I think it, it is interesting, and you're right to, to focus on the idea that this isn't just about this summer, this is about years to come. You know, I think there's been a lot of criticism thrown Joe Root's way for the way he handled Archer in his first six months in Test cricket, in the Ashes, and then in that tour of New Zealand, and the idea that England didn't handle him appropriately and they've damaged him long term. Now, that's true, basically. That seems to be, seems to be the case. But that should mean that they should be rewarded for looking long term in terms of trying to look for the positives. They're, they're basically saying, do we need to risk Joffre Archer against New Zealand and South Africa? That's not because we need to diminish that series. They're, they're very important series and, and the one-off, one-off test against India as well. They would want Archer playing in those games. And if he was fit and available with a working elbow, then he would play. But he's not. And, they need, and if he plays and he breaks down again, there's a very real chance that it's the last time he breaks down. And they can't risk losing Archer from all cricket for an, you know, an unforeseen amount of time. They, they cannot risk that. They need to look after this next six months of, of management. Now, you could say, well, we don't want him to play any cricket then and we want him to just rest up. But actually, the, the loads that you put on your body in white ball cricket are minimal, particularly in T20 cricket. You know, it's, it's a high-intensity stress situation, but you, look at, you only need to look at you know, his, uh, his Mumbai Indians teammate, Tamar Mills, of this is a guy who's got a serious, serious back condition and basically can never bowl more than four overs in a game, can barely bowl back-to-back games, but actually he can nurse his way through those things. So that with clever sports science and you know physiotherapy, you can nurse Archer through the summer with minimal risk and you get all the benefits of him playing in the 100 as this incredibly marketable, incredibly cool, incredibly brilliant player. So you're getting something out of him on the field. He's contributing to the broader culture of English cricket without necessarily risking him because he's bowling his 20th over around the wicket bounces at a, a well set Aidan Markram who's on 200 not out you can get that you can get that positivity you can keep him in the system you're not sending him away and putting him at the mercy of you know IPL uh, physios or CPL physios you're keeping him in house and you're getting the opportunity to to watch him but you're not risking him. And I think that's that's the key. I think there's understandable kickback because any time a player says they're not playing test cricket, guess what? People kick up a fuss because, you know, the grand old lady of, uh, of our sports is, is being threatened once again. But actually, this is about making sure Archer can play tests in 2023 and 2024 and hopefully forever because that's that's what English cricket needs. And I think you have to, I think most people, most sensible people can realise the virtue of that. Speaking of not playing test cricket, if we can jump formats for for a second, we, we talked about Broad and Anderson earlier on the show in terms of the PR and the optics and all of that, but as an analyst, from an analytical point of view, what do you make of them as bowlers at the moment um, and, and their omission? 
Anderson is unquestionably still England's best bowler. Is essentially my my basic take. <laughs> it's you know hardly a hot one, but you look at things like expected average, you know, the number of false shots he's drawing, the the threat that he is bringing in the last 12 months, he, 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 they are outstanding. He is comfortably England's best best player, best best bowler rather. And there's been no real drop off. There was that time in I think it was the 2020 summer, the one behind closed doors where everyone got really nervous because he wasn't taking wickets in the second innings and everyone was like, oh, he's getting knackered. He's old. This old man's done. And actually you looked at the underlying numbers and they were the same. And guess what? They've come back around. He's he, he eventually his his numbers kind of corrected themselves because he's James Anderson. Personally, I think I would I I understand why you know people are saying, you know, we need to move on and we need to get to the the next next group but I don't really see the, a, an underlying argument for how that actually benefits the team in the next two three years to be honest because these guys who are in the group around him are still playing guys like Robinson aren't they're not sat there waiting to, to you know be given an opportunity waiting for their debut kind of like let me off the leash you know Robinson played 10 tests last year whatever it was you know Wokes is playing lots of cricket in England these guys are in the setup offering England quality it's not it's not like we need to usher in this next generation and so I think that's that's why I'm I'm, I'm a bit yeah I'm, I'm as bemused as everyone else to be honest as much as I'd love to take a contrary take and say uh, actually yeah we should, uh, we should we are right to drop our best bowler ever because I would enjoy I, w- I would enjoy that but I, I, yeah, I, I can't really see it Broad's a bit different I think because Broad is it, they get clubbed together but Broad is still good but not of the level that Anderson in terms of those underlying numbers Broad is, Broad is a clever bowler and he's a streaky bowler and you know he'll always take wickets but I, it's not quite the same story um, I can understand the moving on from him particularly with the kind of the power he does seem to wield in the dressing room um, in terms of you know moving <laughs> the, the pressure that's been put on certain decisions over the last couple of years you can understand why a new coach might come in and think you know <laughs> this guy is good but not great why would I take the the pressure of him being this 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 huge influence on all of my decisions and if I get something wrong he's going to go and write a column about it <laughs> I think that I can I can understand why why you've even looking at the underlying numbers and thinking this guy's going to churn out you know 20 wickets at 28 I'd rather try and try and find that elsewhere just a quick pivot to the, the Pakistan Super League before we let you go, Ben. Uh, you've been excellent, by the way, talking about the IPL. Thank you for that. We're nine games away from the finals. There's just 30 matches in total. It's short and sharp, the, the PSL. It feels like it's only been going for a week or two and we're nearly at the at the final stage. Uh, the Molten Sultans and the Lahore Qalandas uh, are leading the way. Fakir Zaman, Shan Masood, Mohammad Rizwan, Barbara Azam, Alex Hales leading the runs. There's been tons for Jason Roy and Fakir Zaman. Even room for Will Smead, the young man, to, to add the third high score of the competition uh, making a, a 97 then with the ball Shadab Khan's taken a fifer two fourfers he's taken 17 wickets at 8.5 remember that Shadab's only 23 years old it feels like he's about 40 he's been around for so long uh, then Imran Tahir who is 40 uh, Shaheen Shah Afridi Harris Raufer are leading the wickets Nassim Shah's been there with, with a fifer as well so the big Pakistani names are firing uh, in a competition that people like yourself and others who watch T20 very very closely think he is like right Alongside the IPL as the next best T20 comp in the world. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would say it's, it's, it's more, the, it is more the latter. It is the next best. Next it's best, not, yeah, um, it, yeah it, it, it isn't quite up there. There's just there is still a, a slight drop off, and that's you know that's understandable. But it, it's a fantastic league, and for all kinds of reasons, there's more of a difference now between the IPL and the PSL this year than any other time because we're looking at a six-team league and a ten-team league. So the actual kind of tournament they are as well mm, is, mm. is they're put they're pulling further apart. Um, the, that kind of PSL CPL model of you know everyone's playing 
playing every other day and it's just super condensed and it's super short, short and sharp it's it, I, I, I really enjoy it I think it's I think it's a really good way to go about it I think they also create really interesting dynamics in terms of the teams themselves they've got really clear identities um, particularly uh, like Islamabad are in third and they've, they've lost a couple of close games and they're not necessarily reflecting how good they are on, on, on paper but I think they're a fascinating side in terms of the way they, they construct it. You've got Shadab there, who, according to our, our match impact model, he is having the best CP, uh, PSL season ever. He, you know, he, he is essentially churning out numbers that no one else has ever done in this tournament, which is mad when you think there have been some amazing performances down the years. But I think what, they, what they've done incredibly well is we all, the, the story of Islamabad United being very data-driven um, with Hassan and Rehan is, is very, very well told. You know, everyone who knows the PSL is aware of that. But basically, they've, down the years, they've always focused on you know, getting overseas batsmen in because there are so many good Pakistani quicks. Why would you waste an overseas spot on them? It's the inverse of the, uh, of the Indian model. And so you get this this amazing team where you've got Alex Hales and Ramon Gubaz and uh, Paul Sterling at the top and th- these guys who just whack it from ball one they have, uh, the, the power place run rate that um, Islamabad are going at this season I think it's the third highest ever for any team in a major league I think they're going at like 10.5 something mad it's like they, 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 just, they just come out and they hit sixes and it's brilliant but then from that initial burst you've just got a run of bowling all-rounders you've got, you've got Shadab you've got Fahim Ashraf you've got Mohamed Gwazim Jr you've got Hassan Ali so they bat all the way down to number 10 and so it's just this immensely fun brand of cricket which is just yeah it kind of attracts a lot of neutrals I think but then you've got the flip side it's Multan who are top of the table who are this very calculated uh, very again very data driven Andy Flower as the coach there is always very data driven always very focused on his analytics and the way that they play is is kind of it's kind of uh, kind of two-faced it's double-edged you've got this opening partnership of Rizwan and, and Shah Massoud who are Calm, low heartbeat. You know they're going to try and just keep ticking along. Hit a lot, of, hit a lot of fours rather than sixes. A lot of you know moving the field around. And then they've got Tim David doing his thing in the middle order. So obviously that's great fun. And then Crystal Shah comes in and whacks it at the end. But their focus is on early wickets. That's why they've got guys like Dahani and David Willey and Crystal Shah again with the ball. These guys who are essentially coming in and bowling very aggressive lengths early on. They're trying to take wickets, killing the game early and defending like reasonable scores. They are they are a really, really solid side. Obviously, they've won it in the last couple of years. They did extremely well in the 2020 PSL before that was curtailed by COVID. There's a culture there which is just of a very particular brand of, of, uh, of bowling-focused, controlled T20 cricket, which is which is just really exciting. And then Lahore, Lahore just Shaheen taking new ball wickets for fun and, uh, and then Rashid Khan coming in through the middle. I mean, what the hell don't you, don't you like about that? You know, you got a bowl, you got you got a bowling attack with a guy who hoops you around corners at 150 clicks, and then the best leg spinner of all time comes on. It's just the, the PSL genuinely is is a incredibly fun tournament, and you know, it, it's one of those things. It's you know, if you if you big up the PSL, people think you're doing down the IPL and vice versa. And what I really like is that actually by them pulling further apart in the style of the tournament given the 10 and versus 6 teams I think that it almost lends a bit more credence to the idea that you can just in, you can enjoy both and there's no stress here guys This is these are two very different thrills one goes on for three months and is the pinnacle of the game one lasts a month when there's no other cricket on and it's freezing cold outside and you can you can just you know be transported to uh, to Lahore and Karachi for a couple of weeks and it's, it's very pleasant well Shadab Khan uh, you know leg spinner who can bat in the top six and belt spin? Well, he must have gone for a huge price in the IPL. I, I, I must have missed uh, the, the bit of news about which team picked him up, but I'll have to go back and look over that and, and see where he landed. Uh, your funeral, mate. <laughs> <laughs>
on that note of controversy, thanks, Jeff. Uh, that'll do well in the YouTube comments. Uh, thank you, Ben Jones. As I let you go, I should say that your book with Nathan Lehman last year, Hitting Against the Spin, uh, we meant to get you on to talk about that. But in a way, I think by uh, the last 40 minutes or so, you've explained where you come at things from. You, you are trying to implement or trying to impart uh, an extra layer of uh, analytics on, on top of the short form game which does um, translate through to long form cricket I, I presume that the book did well given how much tension it got at the time uh, yeah it did all right I think there's just been another print run announced and it's coming out in paperback in April I think so if people want to you know give their arms a rest go and go and get that one in, in a month or so yeah and I, sh- I should I should say as much as you know uh, I'm increasingly little, little, little Mr T20 but the book is 70% test cricket and ODI cricket analysis there's this there's, there's hopefully stuff in there that is you know, for all lovers of the game, and you know Nathan, Nathan, who I obviously co-wrote the book with, was with England when they rose to number one Test team in the world, that Andrew Strauss team, and a lot of their their tactics and their approach was was you know intertwined with Nathan's thoughts, and so there's a lot of that kind of stuff in there. And you know, when England won the World Cup, Nathan was in the Nathan was in the dressing room then, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of the, the first chapter, in fact, is devoted to talking about ODI cricket as well. The uh, the latter half of the book talks about um, yeah more T20 stuff and is hopefully a throw forward to you know hitting against the spin two this time it's personal kind of thing where we talk a bit more about the about the idea of what analytics can do in the shortest forms of the game over the next few years and in all seriousness hopefully that's uh, the next time we write the book because I do want to do another one there'll be an opportunity to you know it'll be an entirely different landscape and this thing this kind of stuff's changing every day we're seeing guys like Dan Weston in the IPL you know on the Punjab uh, Punjab Kings table you know dictating strategy and Dan's just a guy with you know with a database and, a, and an idea of how T20 cricket should be played and he's dictating how one of the best teams in the world in theory should be <laughs> should be playing T20 cricket and it's an exciting time to be involved Involved in this kind of stuff and hopefully the book gives an insight into what the layman can learn for it for, for want of a better phrase and what the casual fan can can take away it doesn't have to be nerdy number stuff which is all you know about working out how much Mohammed Rizwan would be worth on the open market sometimes it's just about little quirky things about you know learning why the ball swings and learning why England won the World Cup by trying to hit sixes and not really bothering about the bowling and all that kind of stuff and just learning a little bit um, about what goes on hopefully behind the scenes in, in kind of dressing rooms in the, in the modern game yeah hitting against the spin go buy it lads because then I can, I can buy Colour a pint absolutely well, We'll put the link to it in the show notes. Thanks again, Ben Jones, uh, the new head of media at CrickViz. You're a marvel, and uh, I hope you enjoy the upcoming IPL. We'll talk again soon. Cheers, Carlo. Cheers, Jeff. Hi, I'm Dave Warner, and you're listening to The Final Word. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon. Adam Collins, and a big thanks to Ben Jones for his great enthusiasm. And uh, he, nobody, nobody talks as fast as Ben Jones. I don't think when they get going, when they, when they really get into it, no one can relay as much information about the Pakistan Super League in as short a space of time without a stumble. Yeah, I, I agree with that. He's not only enthusiastic, but his retention for information is quite is quite something. So. Um, always a great supporter uh, of what we do here. Not only him, but Crickvis full stop. So I'm, I'm pleased to see they're, they're on the expand at the moment. And, uh, and that's given Ben a bigger piece of the pie. And they were very involved in the IPL auction over the weekend. So I think we've, we've timed that interview quite nicely. And a reminder that his, uh, yeah, I think, it, I think it was defined as a best-selling book last year, Hitting Against the Spin with Ben Jones and Nathan Lehman. Uh, we'll, we'll pop a link to that into the show notes and 
uh, yeah, pick up a copy. It did really well. A lot of very smart people thought it was one of the books of the year. So uh, you could do worse than, than, than grabbing a copy and, and taking it all in. Final word, we'll be back on the weekend with Storytime, which is where we delve into the rich and varied history of the Michael Clark trademark Great Game of Cricket. Uh, and then we'll be back with the weekly show next week because that is how weekly shows work much in the way that wisdom cricket monthly comes out once a month so this shows on the bad producer podcast network plenty of other shows there on different subjects available as well it's edited by dave collins a big thanks to brick lane and also to Woodstock Cricket for supporting the show. And thanks most of all to everybody on the Patreon page, patreon.com slash the final word, if you want to check that out. Uh, right, that's enough from us. We'll see you next time. I had to go about it right.